Shalom, and welcome to another episode of Israel Policy Pod. Wow, it feels nice to do a shalom. I haven't done a shalom in a really long time. I'm Eli Koaz, Communications Director in Tel Aviv. I'm Evan Gottesman, former Israel Policy Pod Shalomer and Associate Director of Policy and Communications, recording from New York. And I'm Margot Nykirk, last week's Shalomer, and I'm also recording from New York. And we have with us a guest, a returning podcast guest. She hasn't been with us for, I want to say, over a year now. We have... Hi, I'm Shinny Reichman. I'm the Senior Associate of Strategic Initiatives. I have never been a Shalomer. Maybe next time. I would love to hear your shalom. It was a hint. I wasn't very subtle. Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I I'm Shinny Reichman. Great. <laughs> I think she can we're, fit we're, in. <laughs> we're going we're to need our listeners to vote. Whose shalom do you like the best? Because now you've heard Eli's, mine, Margot's, and Shani's. So it's I mean, really a toss-up. we should give people, I think, a compressed version of just like, just let's go around and do four quick shaloms, and then let's Rapid get into fire the shalom. podcast. Shalom. 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 People let us know on Twitter, on Facebook, or by email. Evan, so what's on the menu for today's episode? We are continuing to follow the Israeli coalition negotiations or the lack of coalition negotiations with great interest. And Avigdor Lieberman, who has been quite the enigma throughout this whole process, has come out finally stating his position on where things stand. And it's essentially that the Likud and Kakholavan should accept the model that President Ruven Rivlin put forward for a unity government. And maybe, Eli, could you elaborate on what that Rivlin model looks like? Yeah, sure. So um, this was expected last week that he would come forth with a sort of proposal as to how a unity government would be achieved. Lieberman wasn't really reinventing the wheel here. He posted this proposal just after Yom Kippur on Facebook. He said that a unity government should consist of blue and white, the Likud, and uh, Israel Beitenu, obviously, not a surprise. But he did say that both those parties would make what have become obvious concessions from the Likud uh, to leave their, what's called their block, their right-wing block that Netanyahu agreed upon the day after elections to negotiate on behalf of not just the Likud party, but on behalf of the Likud, the two ultra-Orthodox parties, Shas and United Torah Judaism, and uh, Yamina, the right-wing party, which is just split up. So Lieberman is calling on Netanyahu to leave that block and negotiate just on behalf of the Likud and their 32 seats. And from Kohola Lavan's perspective, blue and white, the demand from uh, Lieberman is that they accept uh, this Rivlin model that you just mentioned, where Netanyahu would start as prime minister. So that's where uh, blue and white would make a, a significant concession. But at the same time, Rivlin proposed that Netanyahu, should he be indicted, take a prolonged leave of absence, which means that seemingly the prime ministership would transfer over to Gantz almost immediately, bearing an indictment. That's what the Rivlin model is, and that's what uh, Lieberman put forth. The reactions were not surprising because the Likud were adamantly against this off the bat. Right. So you you explained to us this model, but we saw that right away with the reaction that the Likud rejected this proposal and that Kaholavan was partially open to it. What does this mean in terms of moving forward? Is Likud holding Israel hostage as they have this proposal like put it forth? And 
there have to be some form of negotiations, but ultimately Netanyahu's party is rejecting it. They're unwilling to give any other proposal. So what does this mean for Israel? Yeah, that's, that's an important question. And unfortunately, I don't really have a clear answer. What's interesting is that there were talks of after like early negotiations when Rivlin invited Netanyahu and Gantz to meet together, that Netanyahu was talking, at least reports indicated that Netanyahu was talking positively or in favor, open to this model proposed by Rivlin. But then that kind of lost steam. And now it's interesting looking at the Likud response because the Likud response was really that Lieberman is just part of the left and he refuses to denounce the possibility of a Gantz government that's supported by the Arabs, constantly mentioning Lieberman with the Arabs as something that to try to get, get under uh, his nerves. At the same time, blue and white, they responded positively, but they also didn't talk about, they said they're, they are fully behind the idea of Netanyahu leaving this block, this, this right wing block, but they didn't even talk about the idea yeah, they didn't even talk about Netanyahu going first as prime minister. Eli, is there room within the framework that Blue and White proposed in their campaign promises for them to accept this deal without making it seem as if they're backtracking on everything they promised their voters? So that's a, also a really important question. If you just look at their promises, there isn't room because they promise to not sit with a prime minister that is under investigation and that is on the verge of an indictment, and Yair Lapid and also Benny Gantz made it clear during coalition negotiations thus far. But I do think we could get to a stage where at least most of the Israeli public will support this, and even most of the people that voted for Benny Gantz. But I think that will occur down the road. We're not there yet. If if we arrive at a situation where we're getting really close to third elections. Gantz has received the mandate after Netanyahu gives it back to Rivlin, and Gantz has done all he can to try to create a coalition. On that last point, Eli, it would seem that there's maybe a marginal difference in support between an outcome in which Netanyahu still gets to head a unity government and one in which Netanyahu is out. I mean, there was a poll recently from Walla that showed that 50% of Israelis opposed a unity government that Bibi was still at the head of. 42% said they would support something like that, and 8% were undecided. So I wonder if, you know, that seems like it's close enough that maybe the tide could shift and people could accept Netanyahu still being around, but also if Kacholavan maybe tied their hands a little by promising altogether that Netanyahu would have to go versus someone like Lieberman, who made a promise more about the composition of the government and not specifically who would be in it. And obviously, there are very good reasons that Kacholavan would not want Netanyahu to be at the head of the government, I'm not discounting that, but you know, Lieberman saying that he just wants a secular unity government gives him some degree of wiggle room into what that looks like, as opposed to Gantz and Lapid saying that they don't want Netanyahu, or they don't want a prime minister under indictment, meaning Netanyahu. Yes, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens should Gantz get the mandate from Rivlin, because he'll try to maneuver and try to create situations where he can become prime minister without without Netanyahu, whether that's uh, through kind of starting like a type of rebellion in the Likud, which we saw signs of last week uh, with Gidon Sar um, and talk of primaries, 
or working with other potential coalition partners to try to create a temporary government uh, to put pressure on the Likud. When you say a temporary government, you're referring to something that maybe would involve the more left-leaning parties like the Democratic Union and Labor. Essentially, they would be creating a situation that would be unpalatable to most Likudniks, that would be a government with the real left-wing parties, and that would bring them around to maybe booting Netanyahu and swapping themselves out for the left so that there is real ideological pressure on them to change their direction. That's right. And obviously, with just looking at the numbers, there's not enough seats there. And Lieberman himself has said that he won't sit in a government with the Arab parties or with the Democratic Union. But if you look, there is an opportunity, let's say, for Lieberman to keep that promise and not sit in that government, but just to abstain from votes. And then you could have a temporary, it would be a temporary coalition, most likely, of Kaholavan Labor and the Democratic Union. And that would, with the support of the Arab parties on the outside, that would be 57 seats. And then with Lieberman's support or just his abstention, that would be enough for that government to hold temporarily until the Likud figure things out with Netanyahu. And then Lieberman can just say that he's waiting for that unity government and Kaholavan are, are waiting as well. I mean, you never want to say never, but that seems like it would be fairly far-fetched because a government like this would have relatively narrow base of support, first of all, because you're looking at two left-wing parties that really didn't pull that many seats, plus Kacholavan, which is the largest party, but still not a majority. And then Lieberman, for all that you can say negative about him, and there's a lot to criticize there, it seems at least in this cycle that he has stuck to his principles, or at least what his principles are this time around, because that seems a little amorphous and changes with the winds and with what's politically convenient. And one of the things that Lieberman has always been about is his uncompromising stance toward uh, Israel's Arab politicians, particularly those from these more leftist uh, Arab parties, like the ones that comprise the joint list. So for him, even if he's not sitting in a government, like in the scenario that you lay out, if there's any way that he can be tied to the joint list or he's some way abetting them, I think is just something that he's not going to give into. And I, I think right now he's in a relatively good position to get something that he wants or that's closer to what he wants than that. So I think it would be... A very, very hard sell on him. But again, you never say never. So it's tough to see. Yeah, I think unfortunately, third elections are looking more likely than ever. But there's still a lot of different possibilities in the next few weeks that could uh, develop. And remember, during like the high holidays and Sukkot, people are usually not not that hard at work and not, I'm sure there's political maneuvering going around, but it's not uh, the same as we'll see in the uh, in the coming weeks. You mean that you mean that maybe Lieberman and uh, Netanyahu and uh, Gantz are maybe under the meeting, sukkah. Uh, under between the sukkah. Uh, between between Musaf and Mincha, exactly. right? In the break. Exactly. Well, exactly. to be fair, uh, another thing is Gantz. If you anybody who follows Gantz on social media will have seen that uh, recently he went to I think it was uh, it was uh, Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah services at at a Chabad. He was seen do like posted a video of uh, doing a blessing with uh, the Etrog and the Lulav and the with a uh, ultra-Orthodox rabbi. 
So all sorts of things that are kind of signaling that he is looking to also turn to the ultra-Orthodox. And here, when Evan says that almost anything is, nothing is impossible in Israeli politics, I think that might be the one thing that is impossible. I have a question for the group. If we were to go to a third election, which to me seems wildly unpopular and a massive waste, again, of money and will produce no uh, different outcome, who do you think is going to be blamed for it? by the Israeli public. Well, here's what I think. First, we were saying that it'll be there'll be similar results. I actually think the results are going to be worse. I think that the religious are going to come out in bigger numbers because they have more of a reason to come out for. The seculars are going to be they're going to have voter fatigue. They're going to stay home and there's going to be less of that and I think that Kahulavan and and left-wing parties are ultimately going to suffer. In terms of the blame, it's hard to pinpoint. I think Kahulavan has done everything so far in their power within certain constraints to try and form a unity government. I mean, Lapid gave up last week his agreement for rotation for prime ministership. I think Netanyahu has been holding everyone hostage for the past 10 months, and he's been un, like unable to form a government in April. Now it's October. It's still not happening. Maybe this is my personal opinion, but I would, if I were Israeli, I would blame Netanyahu. That's just me. I would just add to that. That is a possibility, Margot, but I would also add that it's likely that in December, the attorney general will decide whether Netanyahu will be indicted. And assuming that he is, I don't think it will be a great look for Netanyahu going into elections with uh, pending or with an actual indictment in place. It will be very difficult for him. And then you'll see mounting pressure in the Likud. There may be voter fatigue, but I mean, if you also, you look at it, elections would probably be in there in January. That's a time when not many Israelis are, as many Israelis, especially secular Israelis, are on vacation compared to when these elections were. There were there had also been predictions of voter fatigue for these second elections, and the numbers actually went up slightly, and that was largely thanks to the increase in the uh, Israeli-Arab vote. I would just add here, I think that two things, jumping off of what you said, Margot, first is that an increase in turnout among ultra-Orthodox voters I don't think is necessarily by itself a win for Netanyahu, especially if Likud continues to contract as it did in the second election. I mean, Likud came out of that first election with 39 seats when you count Moshe Kahlon's Kulanu, which they absorbed after the election, and now they're down to 32. So they already lost effectively seven seats. And you look at where Avigdor Lieberman picked up votes, a lot of it was in places where Likud had fared better in the April election. So from that we can kind of reason that he was building off of dissatisfaction or you know fatigue about Netanyahu among Likud voters. So it wasn't necessarily left-wing voters, although there's certainly some people who would identify as left-wing who probably voted for Lieberman this round, as strange as it sounds. But it was more these uh, tired Likudniks who he was able to peel off. And even if the ultra-Orthodox did well, if a party like Yisrael Beitenu, Avigdor Lieberman's party, or, say, Kachol Lavan, continues to benefit off of the situation within Likud and Netanyahu's own personal maladies, then I think that that wouldn't necessarily be a good outcome for Netanyahu. So I think third, third elections, regardless of who people are blaming now, I think in the end third elections are not going to be a good outcome for Netanyahu. 
Yeah, I think we'll see kind of an amplified version of the reactions from the second election. So, like Evan mentioned, Likud doing worse. I think they could have potential to do even worse. And Margot mentioned the Arab parties doing better. I think they'll do even better, especially given their ability to show that they can be team players. I think that the Arab community seemed pretty pleased, generally speaking, at that. Correct me if I'm wrong on that one. And so I think that they'll, uh, now that they see their actual potential. I mean, a, a quick note on the Arab parties, and of course, anything could change, but I think the joint list benefited from a specific set of circumstances that were unique to the September election. First of all, there was the well, some some unique and some not unique. So you had, for example, Netanyahu's inciting against Israeli Arab voters and against Israeli Arab politicians. That's not unique to the September election, although it was particularly severe in September. And I think that the senses that that energized a lot of Israeli Arab voters to get out and go to the ballot box to in a level that they didn't do in April, certainly not in April, where the uh, turnout was relatively low. There was also the fact that Ehud Barak was running in the September election. And Ehud Barak is, for reasons that we've discussed on the podcast before, and there are many of them, widely disliked by Israeli Arabs. And he was running in the Democratic Union, which is the alliance that includes Meretz. And Meretz received about a quarter of the Israeli Arab vote in April. And now a lot of those people aren't going to vote for Meretz or the Democratic Union because they had Ehud Barak on the list. Presumably, maybe, maybe not, Ehud Barak wouldn't necessarily be on the Democratic Union list if there were a third election. And maybe that would tilt some of that Arab vote back toward the Democratic Union. But if you look at the results in a lot of the major Israeli Arab cities where Meretz did relatively well in the last election, there's a pretty notable decline between April and September in terms of who voted for Meretz or Democratic Union and who voted for the parties that now comprise the joint list. And you guys know how much I love the polls, right? You guys want to hear about uh, a poll that was done? Tell us a well, new there was poll. Actually one, Tell us a this, new poll. Is this, we is missed this, your polls. Is this a no, third election not, poll? No, it's There was uh, that wallet poll that you guys spoke about earlier. There was actually, when they did that poll, they actually took a poll if elections were held again. And they also entertained the idea of what would happen if Gidon Saar was at the head of the Likud instead of Netanyahu. And so in a situation where Netanyahu was still at the head, both parties finished with 33. Both Gidon Saar at the head... You mean both, yes, both Likud, Likud and, and both Kaholavan? Both Likud and Kaholavan. Um, at the head, Kaholavan finishes at 33, and the Likud drops to 26. So definitely not helping um, the case to remove Netanyahu, but an interesting, something interesting to follow. I don't even want to think about third election polls Me at this neither. point. <laughs> but I know that you love your polls, so we'll let you have that. So... As we're thinking about this in the Israeli context, we are, at the end of the day, an American organization. We work in the American policy community and in the American Jewish community. And Benjamin Netanyahu has been a very polarizing figure in both of those spheres. So if he's on his way out, what does this mean for how those two communities are going to think about Israel? Because for a lot of people who came of age in the past 10 years, I think speaking for myself and at least two of the others here, Netanyahu is probably the only Israeli prime minister we really remember clearly. And a lot of that relationship was shared with 
U.S. President Barack Obama and with U.S. President Donald Trump, who are probably two of the American presidents that we remember with the greatest clarity. I mean, as the oldest person on this podcast, I do remember Ehud Olmert, Ehud Barak, even Yitzhak Rabin, Arik Sharon. You're not that much older. I'm not like you guys. You're, you're what, five? You're four years older than me? I'm 29. And he remembers I'm an extra five prime minister. I know, wow. It, it just it just really shows how ubiquitous Netanyahu has been in the Israeli political scene. That in Eli's first ten years, there were twenty Israeli prime ministers, <laughs> and in ours, there was only one. one. So, Eli's childhood also spanned the first fifty years of Israel's existence as an independent state. That's um, in any case. They're right. There may there may be a generation like Eli's born around 1990 that remembers a couple of more Israeli prime ministers. And I'm not saying that we have no memories of other prime ministers, but really when we think about Israel, our formative memories of the U.S.-Israel relationship are Netanyahu and Obama and now Netanyahu and Trump. Well, I think it'll be really helpful for pro-Israel American organizations to make a strong case that Israel and Netanyahu are not synonymous once Netanyahu is not the prime minister. I think it'll make their job, especially those lobby groups working on the Hill, I think it'll make their job particularly easier. That said, when we're talking about young progressives, are they going to really distinguish between Gantz's policies and Netanyahu's policies? I think it's pretty unlikely. I think we'll be a little bit disappointed if we're expecting them to shift in terms of the younger activist movements. But I do think that it'll make uh, a lot of the work in Washington a lot easier. And I also think that it, in terms of the more mainstream political community, I think it'll be pretty helpful. Yeah, I think in order for these organizations, American Jewish organizations, to make a distinction between Gantz and Netanyahu, there has to be a, a material distinction for them to make. And certainly there are differences. And I, I think that there have been a lot of people who came out right out of the gate and said, there's no difference. It doesn't matter who's in charge. And I think it matters a great deal. But, you know, Gantz is not a leftist. He's not maybe the ideal that a lot of people who want to see certain policies enacted, like um, more of a direct path toward negotiations and a two-state solution, exactly fitting in that mold. And that may continue to be troubling for a lot of people and, and for good reasons. But that's just speaking for my own experience. And regardless of the degree of difference between Gantz and Netanyahu, and as we've stated, there are a lot of similarities. And Gantz has also played things pretty close to the chest in terms of not really laying out really explicit policy priorities that people might have been paying attention to. Shani, in your work, because you're doing work with IPF Atid, our, our young professionals group, how have you seen engagement with Israel from the American Jewish community change as a result of Netanyahu's long tenure in office? Well, I, have, I haven't been doing this work for 10 years, or however long, Bibi's in charge, 11 now maybe. But I, I will say that it's a common idea that young American Jews are very disengaged on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I guess experience that that fatigue and have no desire to engage in this issue. But I think we have found, and a big part of building IPF fatigue was trying to sort of prove that wrong in some ways, to prove that young American Jews are invested in this issue. They just haven't really found a space for a thoughtful discourse on it. I know it sounds strange for us sitting here, but there are people who don't know what IPF fatigue is out there. What is it? So IPF fatigue 
is the millennial-led network of Israel Policy Forum. The idea is that we take all of the Israel Policy Forum content and analysis, such as this podcast, and we bring it to our communities around the country. So we have chapters right now in New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Los Angeles, and we are about to launch in San Francisco next week. The idea is to help people use our content to move this conversation forward in a way that's a lot more constructive and doesn't get caught up in a broad ideological debates. We try to find uh, some folks who are already deeply invested in this work and a lot of others who maybe haven't found the space to be and bring them together so that they can form meaningful connections with each other and, and try to partake in this conversation. Oh, we believe that the American Jewish community has quite a lot of skin in the game. We see ourselves as stakeholders in this issue. And as such, we think that our communal conversation has a really important role to play. And so we try to do our part in bringing the younger generation to this conversation since they, I mean, already are, but definitely eventually will be the leaders of many of these American Jewish organizations and thought leaders in Washington in the policy and business sphere as well. And what do you see as ways that are bringing people who might have been disengaging into this fold? Well, one of our new initiatives, which we're all pretty excited about, is the Women, Peace, and Security Project channel. The goal is to advance women's involvement, expertise, and leadership in Israeli-Palestinian peacebuilding and Jewish communal affairs. And it comes out of this acknowledgement that uh, women's voices aren't necessarily heard in this sphere. <laughs> There's a severe underrepresentation of women in working in conflict resolution, and those who are you don't really see their voices amplified in the same way and you don't see their content featured as prominently. And so a big part of this initiative is to try and change that in some way. And we do that by building partnerships with women's groups in Israel and Palestine, and we try to connect them to activists in the United States. It's actually a very big week for our West Coast communities because in addition to our San Francisco launch, we are going to have our Women, Peace and Security launch in Los Angeles next week on October 16th. So how can people best access this resource? We have a database that has a list of speakers who we kind of recommend who are partners with us in this work. Some who have been guests on this podcast. Many, actually. And we provide a, this list so that people, when they're developing content and when they're creating programs in person and online, they can have this resource to access where they can see the work of women in this field and feel hopefully compelled to to promote it more widely and to prioritize or at least have this focus in mind of amplifying the voices of women when they're creating these, pro these programs. Among our eventual goals is to have in-person events across the country as well as a working group which already exists and we're trying to grow that. So if you're interested in helping out in this initiative, it doesn't matter which city you're based in, we're more than open to hearing your ideas and getting feedback from you, you can send us an email at atid, A-T-I-D, at ipforum.org. And so you're having your first official event in L.A. next week. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Our event is going to be on the evening of Wednesday, October 16th. It's in the Miracle Mile neighborhood. For those who are familiar with L.A., I am not. And it's going to have a keynote panel featuring Tali Raphael from the Jewish Journal and 30 Years After, Shira Efron from Rand Corporation, and Adam Bassiano, IPFIT's national director, and it will be moderated by the chair of our Women, Peace, and Security channel, Rachel Wallace. If you are interested in RSEPing, you can do so at ipf.li forward slash WPS 1016, which is the date, in case you're ever wondering how we develop our bit.ly links. Now you know. And... You also mentioned that IPF Atid has these chapters uh, across the country and that you're bringing a new one into the 
IPFATID community, and that is San Francisco next week. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how you got that launched and how people can get involved at that program next week? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, San Francisco is going to be our fifth city that launches. A chapter city is essentially a place where we develop what we call a steering committee, committing to bring our content there in a more active fashion. So the event is going to be on Thursday, October 17th in the Soma neighborhood. Again, not familiar with where that is, um, but you can Google it and we will obviously send you an address upon RSVPing. The link to RSVP is ipf.li slash launch. And our speakers are going to be our very own Evan Goddesman. Oh, that's a surprise. <laughs> Evan just found out now he's our speaker. Surprise, you're going to San Francisco. Yay. Uh, Danny it's like Brown. when they pull like the prize behind the door at these like game shows, right? <laughs> yes, you're you're welcome. Thank you, <laughs> Danny Brown Wolf from Hexa Foundation and Orbs, Dahlia Katan, formerly of Deloitte, and Alon Sahar, formerly of the U.S. Department of State. We are going to have food by Noosh, which I'm told is very popular in San Francisco. If that is compelling, do they have Noosh in, in New York? I think they do. I feel like do I've they? seen it. It's like Middle Eastern, yeah. right? It's like a Middle Eastern chain. It sounds like it. I like to think of myself as a chain restaurant enthusiast. Oh, so. yes. We've established that yes. on some podcasts. So <laughs> Confirmed. I'm going to actually, you can hear the clatter of the keys in the background, but I was wrong. I feel embarrassed. I got my chain restaurants wrong. I was thinking of Nanoosh, which is the Middle Eastern restaurant in New York, not Noosh, which I'll have to find out what that is next week, and I'll be sure to report back to all of you. But thank you, Shani. It sounds like there's a lot of really great programming coming up. There is. Our podcast listeners will be anxiously awaiting your review of Noosh. I'll be sure to give an honest and objective appraisal of Noosh. We want to make sure that we're embodying our Israel policy forum values of forthrightness and intellectual integrity when we're talking about the two-state solution and when we're talking about the catering at our events. Yes, I want a thoughtful, nuanced analysis, please. And I'll be sure to deliver, just like Noosh will be delivered to our San Francisco Atid launch. So with that, thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Shani, for being our special guest for the week. Thank you guys for letting me ramble on about Atid. I very much appreciate it. I really hope that some of our listeners are compelled to join us. Yes, it would be nice to see any of you at these events. As we've said before, we're not just voices on your computer or phone or record player however you're consuming this podcast we are real people and we'd love to meet you and with that we'll catch you on the next episode